0: Well, people that know me really well, they know that I'm passionate, first of all, about studying the Bible. That's my first loyalty. But I'm also passionate about studying psychology. As a matter of fact, I have a couple of degrees in psychology, and I, I am always interested in the convergence of Scripture and what we're learning when we do psychology research correctly, which, by the way, I'm never I'm, I'm never afraid of science because when science is done well, it always vindicates the Bible. It doesn't argue with it. Um, as a matter of fact, I've written academically on the subject of where the Bible and psychology meet. So it's something I'm always very interested in. Uh, and there's one particular um, bit of of psychotherapy research I was reading the other day. I'm going through it and I'm reading this research and it's talking about different models of psychotherapy that are helpful and ones that aren't and so forth. And it's talking about one of the most helpful models and it said about this model that it is based on the premise that when a person is is in a crisis, they almost always know what they need to do. They just have a really good reason for not doing it. I think that was a very interesting take, and, I, and, and this particular model is highly supported, so there must be something to it. That, in a sense, when we're going through a difficult time, and, and we know we need to do something to get out of our current situation and get toward the situation that we need to be in, there's a sense in which we know what we need to do. The problem is we just don't think we can, or we're dealing with a, some sort of a, a barrier to get to where we need to be, or um, we're dealing with some sort of a speed bump along the road. We're dealing with resistance. So I want to just start off today, and this is going to be helpful, I think, if you can sort of get this situated in in your mind so that it gives you something personal to think about. I want you to ask yourself the question, what is it right now in your life that you know that you need to do it? You know what you need to do, but you have a really good reason for not doing it. You're in some sort of a crisis. Maybe it's a small crisis. Maybe it's a big crisis. You know what you need to do, but you're just not doing it. For me, that would be... Uh, <clears throat> I mentioned this uh, in a previous message that uh, you know I've been at New Spring for a little over nine years, and in those nine years, I've put on about 25 to 30 pounds of character and integrity. I now have what is referred to as a dad bod. <laughs> Doesn't sound very good to me, but apparently it's not a bad thing. But... So, I, I, you know, I continuously talk about the things that I know I need to do, right? And my doctor has told me the two things that I need to do. Anybody know what those two words are? Two things I need to do to lose weight, what are they? Now, doesn't that sound like too much at once to you, right? Like, diet and exercise at the same time, you know? That seems like an awful lot. But because I've heard this, I parrot it, right? I, you know, I'm hanging around people that I love. Well, I gotta diet and exercise, you know, and. And I've, I've said this around my dad about a million times. i got to start working out. i got to start working out. And I think that I was hoping that by those words coming out of my mouth, I would just start losing weight by osmosis. That God would recognize that the flesh was weak, but the spirit was willing. And I was saying over and over again that I needed to work out, and surely at some point the pounds would just start falling off. Now, something that you need to know about my parents. My parents are incredibly healthy. And there's no joke there. My parents are very healthy. They eat very healthy, um, take good care of their bodies. And so I think my dad had heard me say over and over and over and over again, I need to work out. And he thought, well, I'm going to help with this. He said, well, then why don't we go work out together? We'll go in the mornings. we'll, We'll go work out and it'll be a good experience. We'll get a chance to connect and so forth. And I really, I thought that was great. And we went and we worked out and I loved the opportunity to talk back and forth and connect and so forth. But the problem is that you have to work out while you're doing that. So I start looking through my text messages to my dad over the last you know, couple of weeks, and I started noticing a theme. Like I brought a few, I sort of paraphrased these, so these aren't exact, but these are sort of paraphrased texts from the last couple weeks to my dad. The first one says, not feeling great today, let's try tomorrow. Now I don't care what you think, that is a faith-based message right there. There's hope there. Let's try tomorrow. I'm not saying we're never going to work out again, right? Now my dad's very gracious. Oh yeah, that sounds great. Well, you know, tomorrow's going to be great. And then I send this one, lower back's a little sore this a.m., gonna see the chiropractor, and then back at it tomorrow, you know? Still faith, you know, still believing in the future, my best life, and so forth. Um, So then uh, the next text, Thanksgiving's coming up, lots to do, we'll catch up after the holiday. And then this one, can't believe how busy December is, catch up after Christmas? I haven't sent that one yet. (laughs) Sometimes I know what I need to do, and I just don't do it. And you know what? It's funny when we're talking about working out. It's not funny in other areas. You know, my, my wife is one of the most talented relationship coaches that I know. And she sits across from ladies who come in to see her to talk about their marriages And you have no idea how many of those ladies come in to talk to her that would do anything to get their husband to come in with them to talk about their relationship. And you know what? I I think I know this experientially, that if I were to sit down with that guy and ask him about, do you think it would be the right thing to get couples coaching? You know what he would tell me? Yeah, I think it's the right thing. But then there would be a string of reasons why he's not going to do it. Some of us, you know, so, 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 there there's some people in this room that came and heard the message during the Blessed series about giving, and it's not something that we talk about a whole lot at New Spring. We never want anybody to feel pressured by that, that we, we want people to give out of a spirit of love for God, not because they're feeling like they're under some sort of pressure every time they come in this room. But I will tell you this, there are some people that heard that message, and they would say, I know it would be the right thing for me to give to God, but, and then there would be a long list of the reasons why not? There are people in this room who'd say, I know this relationship is toxic and unhealthy, and I know I should be creating distance, but, and here's the list of a million reasons why they're not going to do that. It gets serious. It gets serious really quickly. Now, there are three traps that I tend to fall into. When it's something that I know I need to do but I just end up not doing it. The three things that I notice that I use as sort of escape avoidance away from what I need to do are these, Um, procrastination, compromise, and excuses. Are you familiar with any of these? I mean, this is my MO right here. Procrastination says, sure, I'll do it, just not now. You know, let's work out. Let's do it. Let's get buff. Let's go in and work out on those machines. Just not right now, you know, later. Let's do it later. Compromise says it's not as important as people seem to think it is. Oh, I'll, I'll give a little of myself to that, but I'm certainly not putting my full weight on it. It's not that important. Excuses are the worst. Excuses says I know I should, but. I know I should do this, but here's why I can't. I know I should do this, but here's why I won't. I know I should do this, but here's why life is keeping me from doing what I know I should do. Now here's my question to you. If you identify at all with any of what I just said, if your life has been set back in some way by these three things the way that it has set my life back, can I ask us a question just to get us thinking about this? Why do we do these things? Because I have to be honest with you, when I first started thinking about it this week, you know my answer was kind of lame. My answer was just kind of like, well, because that's what we do. That's what human beings do. When we're up against you know, something difficult, we tend to procrastinate, we tend to compromise, we tend to make excuses, that's just what we do. I don't think that's a good enough answer. There's got to be a reason why otherwise incredibly intelligent human beings end up choosing not to do the right thing when we know what the right thing is to do. And this is what I've come up with. And just sort of chew on this for a minute and see whether or not this makes sense to you. I would say that my life experience has been that there is an intimidation factor baked right into doing the right thing. As a matter of fact, I would say that the more you're doing the right thing, the bigger that intimidation factor tends to be the more anxiety comes with doing the right thing, the more resistance comes with doing the right thing. The just, it just becomes, your life is not as simple if you're doing the right thing. It becomes more complex. You would think it would be the other way around. How many of you in this room are parents? How many of you know that doing the right thing as a parent makes your life more complex? If you did the easy thing and just let your kids eat Swiss rolls and ho-hos and watch cartoons until four o'clock in the morning, right? Life, in a sense, would be less complex because you wouldn't have to fight the battles that you have to fight, and yet you know that doing the right thing means you're going to have to fight some battles, and you're going to have to stand up for the right thing, and life's going to be more complex. Why? Why is there an intimidation factor built into doing the right thing? Well, the Bible tells us. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, the Bible says, "We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies." By the way, you recognize this, and this is something that every one of us who is on social media social media needs to tattoo on our cortex that we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Our enemies are never people. I posted something online on Facebook this week that was, you know, just near brilliant. And I sat back from it for a second and had to remind myself that our enemies are never people, and I deleted it. it wasn't, I wasn't being aggressive or confrontational, but the bottom line was I'm thinking to myself, why am I fighting a battle with this person? My enemy's never a person anyway. My, enemy are never, my enemies aren't people. The Bible says that what we're really fighting against is evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. See, at Newspring, Spring, we believe there is a real Satan. And if you are doing the right thing, he's not happy. As a matter of fact, we could say it this way. We would say that if you're doing the right thing, it is normal to feel like you're fighting a major battle. We should normalize this a little bit. If you're doing the right thing, it is normal to feel like you're fighting a battle because you have a legit adversary who is not going to take it lying down. We have sort of a sappy idea sort of floating around our culture that the reason that you do the right thing is for society. You do the right thing to benefit society. That is your, that is your societal responsibility. Well, I mean, there may be a little bit of truth in that, but but you understand that doing the right thing, especially if you are a believer, doing the right thing has a a far bigger footprint has a far bigger consequence that doing the right thing is a manifestation of God's will on a planet where God's will is generally not done you remember what we're supposed to pray in the Lord's prayer your will be done where on earth as it is in heaven, why? Because God's will is generally not done on earth, so when you're doing the right thing, think about this, when you're doing the right thing, you become a pinpoint of shining light that is manifesting God's will in a broken planet, and believe me, Satan does not like that, he won't take it lying down. It is agitating to him, it is a burr in his saddle, and he will come after you, because you're doing the right thing. It is normal to feel like you're fighting a major battle. Now, here's what I wanna share with you, and and it's gonna take me a little while to get all the way around to the close of this, but I wanna tell you that there is a secret to fighting this battle. So if you're in this room, and you're trying to do the right thing, and you are feeling more resistance now than you have ever felt, in your spiritual life. If you're feeling more resistance now than you've ever experienced in your walk following God, Here's what I want you to know. There's a secret to fighting this battle. Now, by secret, I don't mean that this is some sort of, of hidden thing that God has put under wraps in the Bible, and we're going to have this great aha moment here. I mean this in the sense that we talk about the best-kept secret, that this is something that every believer should carry around in their hip pocket and, and and really, really understand and digest and make it part of who we are as individuals. But, but far too often... We don't remember this. We don't keep track of it. And we don't think about it this way. Now, this is a little teaser for the thing that you need to know about fighting the battle. And that is that Satan has only one tactic to work with. Only one tactic. It takes different forms. But at the fountainhead, there is one tactic. We're going to talk from the rest of this message about the one tactic that Satan has and what you can do about it. In order to do that though, I'm gonna take you to the Old Testament. We're gonna look at a story in 2 Kings chapter six. If you've got your Bible, this would be a fantastic time to turn to 2 Kings six. If you've got your electronic reading device, you can open that up or you can look at it on the New Spring app. This is a story about a prophet named Elisha. Prophets had a very interesting job in Bible days. So there were two very important offices in ministering to God's people, being a priest or a prophet. Now, a priest's job was to represent the people to God. But a prophet had a very interesting job. prophet's job was to represent God to his people. In a sense, he was a preacher, but he was a very special kind of preacher because the scriptures were not available yet at this point. So God would speak to the prophet, and the prophet would deliver God's messages to the people. It was a very interesting job, and not always a popular one. Because God's people tended to be kind of flaky. And so he would send these prophets. Sometimes the prophets had good messages to send. Sometimes the prophets had to say things that were pretty unpopular. Well, the prophet we're going to talk about today is Elisha. Now, Elisha was uh, the successor of one of the most amazing prophets of all time, Elijah. If you know your Bible, you know Elijah just... I mean, the stories in Elijah's life just leap off the page, these amazing accounts that are just uh, so fun, really, uh, to read. If you haven't read it before, you should totally do it, because it's a very exciting part of the Bible to read. Uh, But now Elisha is the prophet, and one of the things the prophet was supposed to do was sort of serve as a military advisor, not just as an advisor about spirituality and not just as an advisor about matters of, of... internal, um, the sort of internal laws and so forth. They were also supposed to be sort of foreign policy guys, and they were basically giving God's warnings about um, different enemies that might be trying to attack them, and that is exactly where we find ourselves in Second Kings 6. So the Bible says, when the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he would confer with his officers and say, we're going to mobilize our forces at such and such a place. This is typical battle planning stuff, right? You take the little push pin, you put it on the map, this is where we're going to, this is where we're going to hit them. But immediately, Elisha, the man of God, would warn the king of Israel, don't go near that place, for the Arameans are planning to mobilize their troops there. Keeping in mind that the Arameans were a big people group. So if they showed up at any time, and the, the people of Israel were really there, they, were, they would have outnumbered them by so many that it would have been a done deal. But what was happening was, Elisha was giving the sort of heads up, hey, they're coming for you at this spot, and then as soon as the Arameans would show up, it'd be a ghost town, and it was just getting frustrating, because they kept showing up and nobody was there. So the king of Israel would send word to the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he would be on the alert there. The king of Aram became very upset over this. And that's understandable. So he called his officers together and demanded, which of you is the traitor? He thinks he has a spy. That there's somebody on his payroll that's going over and telling the people of Israel. So he says, who's been informing the king of Israel of my plans? They said, it's not us. Elisha the prophet in Israel tells the king of, uh, tells the king of Israel even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom. They're saying, "Look, there is stuff that you haven't told us." That Elisha is telling the king of Israel. Go and find out where he is. The king commanded, "So I can send troops to seize him." Now, if I'm the king of Aram, I'm thinking, "Oh, this problem is not nearly as big as I thought it was." I thought I had a spy. I thought there was this whole thing going on. I thought there was gonna be, I was gonna have to really clean house here. turns out there's just one single preacher out in the middle of the wilderness who's creating this problem. I mean, that should not be a big deal. So he sends a huge contingent of his army out to go get the guy. Because he finds out Elisha's at Dothan. So one ninth king of Aram sends a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. And Dothan was a, it was a sizable city. So to, to surround Dothan uh, would have taken quite a few uh, soldiers. So when Elisha's servant gets up the next morning and went outside, he sees there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. And that word everywhere is important. Because as I started this talk, I asked you, I said, think about something in your life that you know what you need to do and yet you're not doing it and immediately you felt pushed back in your spirit because you thought, Jonathan, if you knew how big the obstacle was to doing the right thing, you wouldn't pressure me on this. You would know, I just, I I can't. This is bigger than me. This is so much bigger than me. I can't do what, what I need to do. I know what I need to do, but I can't do it. Well, at least you and Elisha's servant on the same page, because he looks and it's like one of those old Western movies where the entire horizon is full of people that are coming for you. I mean, that's what it was like for him. Only it wasn't just the horizon, it was the horizon and all the way around him, they were surrounded. Keep in mind, these aren't warriors, these are preachers, you know, we're not great fighters. So Elisha's servant says, what will we do now? And Elisha said, don't be afraid, for there are more on our side than there are on theirs. I hope you're not disappointed in me when I say this, but I think partially because I'm kind of skeptical by nature, platitudes do nothing for me. And when I'm in a moment of crisis, I don't want to hear platitudes, right? So the internet memes uh, that kind of have messages of faith, if I'm going through a crisis, they irritate me. You know, the little cross-stitched messages we put up on the wall, uh, you know, that have little sayings that rhyme something about... You know, God, and, and I'm certain that those are meant to really be faith-inspiring. They just don't do that for me. So if I'm Elisha's servant, and Elisha says to me, "Well, there are more with us than with them," I'm thinking, "Well, thanks for that. I appreciate that." You know, Christian sentiment. Meanwhile, we're going to die. <laughs> then Elisha prayed, "O oh Lord, open his eyes and let him see." So the Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses. And chariots of fire. What had happened, and you can read the rest of the story when you get home, what had happened was God had sent an army of angels that far outnumbered the army that had surrounded to take Elisha. See, Elisha and his servant, they had been doing the right thing. And they were on Satan's radar screen. Satan was using the king of Aram and all this big army to try to get to. And that's where we're going to be in just a second. They wanted to try to get to Elisha. They wanted to get inside his head. Satan wants to send this huge army, really get inside Elisha's head. But the thing was, God was ready to send an army that was so much bigger than the one that was there to take Elisha out. So there's this weird battle going on in the background, and that's what I want to talk about before we finish our talk. I told you Satan only has one tactic in his tool belt. This is what it is. You can trace just about everything Satan does in our lives back to this one tactic. Let's just call it shock and awe. Shock and awe. The guys who literally wrote the book on the concept of shock and awe, Ullman uh, and Wade, had this to say about it. Check this quote out, because I really got excited when I was reading this this week. Achieving shock and awe rests in the ability to deter and overpower an adversary through, get this, through the adversary's perception. Through their perception and fear of his vulnerability and our own invincibility. It's a mind game. Shock and awe is about putting on an impressive display of force so that your opponent will think there is no way they can ever win. It is an impressive display of force so your opponent thinks that no matter what happens, they're gonna lose. In psychology, we talk all the time about the fight-or-flight reflex, and we're learning more about it all the time. But, but what we know in terms of our cognition as it relates to fight-or-flight is that we, we, f- we flee or we run away from something if we don't think we have the resources to meet the demand. We fight if we think we do have the resources to meet the demand or to deal with the threat. As a matter of fact, do you know, in, in the science of stress, not to get too deep into this, but in the science of stress, we're always interested, why does one person view something as a challenge and the next person views it as an overwhelming stress and it breaks them down? Well, here's what we know from the science. We know that the person who sees it as a challenge and attacks it head on believes they have the resources to deal with it. They don't, it's not that they don't think that it's going to be difficult. They just think that they can handle it. The person who sees it as an overwhelming stressor is a person who believes they don't have the resources to meet the demand. And Satan is absolutely intent on convincing you that you will never have the resources to meet the demands of life. He wants to keep you depressed. He wants to keep you anxious. He wants to keep you under his thumb by making you think that you will never win. And that's why Elisha's servant was stressed out. That's why he was wigged out. And by the way, this is Satan's only weapon that works. Mind games is Satan's only weapon that works. That's the only thing he's got. You do realize the scripture is very clear that God and his angels incredibly outnumber Satan and his angels. So there's actually no way that Satan can win. The only thing that he can do is try to convince you that he's gonna win. It's a bluff. It's a mind game. This is what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians. He said, we need to be careful in order that Satan might not outwit us. He's like, you know, Satan likes to play mind games. He likes to try to outwit people. He said, we need to be uh, not unaware. We need need to be aware of his schemes, because that's what he does. He schemes things up. The Bible says that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. He's the father of the bluff. So I, I want to give you this key thought to hang your hat on. As a matter of fact, if this is the only thing that you pick up from today's talk, this is the one that I want you to keep. And as a matter of fact, this wouldn't be a bad thing to write down if you have a um, writing utensil. This wouldn't be a, a bad thing to keep track of. Satan never wins by defeating God's child because he can't do it. You can't do it. If you are God's child, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, so Satan doesn't, he doesn't have the capacity to defeat you. Satan only ever wins by getting God's child to forfeit. Satan only ever wins by bluffing so hard, by playing mind games so deep, and by perpetrating shock and awe on you so much that you back off where God has called you to stand in the gap, that you back off where God has said, stand your ground, and you back off when God was gonna back you up. There's multiple stories of this in Scripture. You know, our first parents in the Garden of Eden, the whole reason that the the world that we live in is as broken and messed up as it is is because Satan played mind games with our first parents and they forfeited what they should have kept. Children of Israel forfeited their opportunity to go into the promised land. Ended up wandering around in the desert for 40 years while the older generation died off because Satan played mind games with them. They sent those spies into the promised land, saw those giants, and those giants started to become obsessions for them and they couldn't get past it. That was all they could see and as a result they forfeited what God had for them. Elijah. We're talking about Elisha. But Elisha's predecessor, Elijah, I mean, here's a guy who was not afraid of anything, didn't seem to be afraid of anything. I mean, he had these incredibly uh, victorious moments. He's dealing with the worst king Israel ever had, King Ahab. He's dealing with uh, King Ahab's wife, Jezebel, who was worse than her husband. I mean, this was a this was a really, really difficult job for Elijah. And he dealt with threats every day of his life. And yet there came a moment when Jezebel threatened Elijah and said, you're going to be dead by this time tomorrow. And for some reason it clicked and the mind game took hold. And the next thing you know, Elijah's sitting out in the desert. He's sent his servant away and he's trying to commit suicide via God. He says, God, I've not made a difference in this world. Nothing I've done has actually changed anything. It's enough. I want you to kill me. Maybe my favorite story as it relates to this is David and Goliath. You know, the story shouldn't be David and Goliath. We shouldn't call it David and Goliath. You know what the story should have been? The story should have been Saul and Goliath. Because if God ever teed the ball up for somebody, he teed the ball up for Saul. They go out there and Goliath is this giant, but by most estimates, uh, we're not talking about, you know, somebody who is as tall as this room. We're just talking about a guy who is really abnormally tall and big. What do we know about King Saul? Saul. We know that he was abnormally tall. King Saul, the Bible says, was head and shoulders taller than anybody else in the kingdom. So you, you tell me, who should have gone out and fought Goliath? Should have been Saul. Saul. I mean, this was was Saul's opportunity to substantiate his leadership over God's people. And I just can't imagine how God could have set him up to win any more than he did. But Saul gave in to the mind games. He looked at Goliath, and all it was was a moment of shock and awe. Next thing you know, he's in the tents with all the rest of the soldiers, not need, nervous, trembling, and trying to, what do we do? Until a little teenage boy comes up and says, Satan's not gonna play any mind games with me. I'm taking this guy out. That's why his story is David and Goliath. Should have been Saul and Goliath, but he forfeited. How many stories should have Jonathan in them, but Jonathan forfeited? He compromised. He made excuses. He procrastinated. See, Satan doesn't win by defeating me. He can't defeat me. He can only win by getting me to forfeit. In the time that we have left, I just, I wanna talk to you a little bit about what your life is gonna be like if you do the right thing. And really, I want you to hone in and listen if you're somebody who, that you know that's the slipstream that you're in. You know that you're trying to follow God. If you're not trying to follow God right now, a lot of what I'm getting ready to say does not apply to you. But if you are actively trying to follow God and you're actively trying to do what he's called you to do, I'm gonna talk to you about what normal is gonna be in your life and how you can be victorious. The first thing that you need to know is that an impressive resistance is to be expected. I, I think... You know, I made a joke before about working out. But you know, when you go to work out and you lift the weights, you know that an impressive resistance is to be expected because that's part of growing and that's part of building strength. Well, if you're doing the right thing, as you grow in God and as you build strength, impressive resistance is to be expected. You have a real enemy, and it's never going to be as easy as just pushing the door open. Satan is going to try to block that door. He's going to try to put obstacles in your path, and impressive resistance is to be expected. We shouldn't be surprised. In 1 Peter, the Bible says this, Be clear-minded and alert. Your opponent, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour now this really, when I read this passage, I'm like, man, I don't know how I, how I spent so much of my life not recognizing that Satan's main tactic is mind games. Because if I'm telling somebody they're getting ready to be in a situation with a roaring lion, I'm going to tell them, be armed. Be armed to the teeth, right? We need to give them some sort of elephant gun or something, whatever it takes to stop a lion in the tracks. I don't know what that would be, right? But, but what God is saying is for this specific lion, The way that you prepare to do battle with him is to be what? Clear-minded. Because he's saying, you you do get that his thing is mind games. That's what his thing is. So if you want to do battle with this lion, you're going to have to be clear-minded. You're going to have to be aware. You're going to have to be alert. Now, here's the thing. In the interest of integrity of the argument that I want to make. In the interest of being completely honest, I will admit this. I will admit that if you were alone, you'd never make it. If you were alone and you had to face the things that you will face in the time of your life, in the years of your life, if you had to face those things alone, you'd never make it. But as we talked about last week, you're not alone. And and here's the way I would like you to think about it. I'm going to grab my little prop because you know how I do love a good prop. Here's what the scripture tells us. You have backup, you have backup. So do what you came to do. Don't forfeit. Do what you came to do, you've got backup. One of my friends who is an officer loaned me this shoulder apparatus. I just gave it a name just now in case you're wondering. So when you see an officer and they walk in and they've got this on them, you recognize they've got backup. I was talking to an officer who was telling me how how often they have to roll into a scene with so little information about what they're going into. And if they were going in alone and they had no backup, nobody would ever advise them to do that. It's scary enough with backup. But without backup, you would never go into a situation like that. But you see this, and you know that that officer, you know there are more where this person came from If they need to call in backup, they can call in backup from the area. If that's not enough, they can call in backup from the state. If that's not enough, they can call in the National Guard. I mean, there is basically a nearly infinite amount of backup. If this person is doing the right thing and they end up outnumbered, then the odds can get evened. And this is what I'm telling you about following God. And I think this is the message of the story with Elisha. And that is that there is an infinite amount of backup that is ready to help you when you need it So you're never walking into that situation alone. You're never walking into that situation alone. By the way, why did God send so many angels and chariots to Elisha and his servant? I truly believe it was because that's how many it was gonna take to win that victory. God knows how much it's gonna take, and he's not at all skittish about sending as much firepower as you need to back you up, whatever it is that you need. You have backup, so you need to stand your ground and do what you came to do. This is in Ephesians 6. The Bible says, therefore, and by the way, this is coming off the heels of the passage that I read you a minute ago that says our enemies are never people, that we're fighting against Satan and his minions. Right on the heels of that, the Bible says, so therefore put on the full armor of God, which is something that we'll talk about someday in a series or in a message, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to do what? To stand your ground, to do what you came to do, to do the right thing. And after you have done everything to stand, do what? Stand. After you've prepared, after you're doing the right, after you're sure you're doing the right thing, you're sure you're following God, and you have put on the full armor of God, then for Pete's sake, don't forfeit. Stand where God has called you to stand and do what God has called you to do. Listen, we're living in a day and age where this is gonna become more and more important. America was a Christian nation. We're not anymore. And I'm afraid that if things continue on as they are now, it's gonna be more and more difficult for Christians to stand where they've been called to stand. And yet, if you believe you truly have backup, then there's never a reason for you to forfeit. Now, how do you do that? We're, we're getting tight on time here, so let's just, let's just break this down. How do, you, how do you stand and do what you came to do and do the right thing even when it's difficult, even when you feel that resistance? Well, the Bible says, resist him, him there as being the devil, and be firm, some of your translations will say, and stand firm in the faith. So if you want to stand firm, you have to stand firm in the faith. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, the Bible says faith is the assurance of things we hope for. And I love this, the certainty of things that we can't see. I don't know. I, I, let me tell you something I don't know about the story. This story about Elisha in 2 Kings 6. I do not know because the Bible does not tell me whether Elisha saw the angels and the chariots. I've always assumed that he did, but you know what? I don't know because the Bible doesn't say. The Bible says the servant saw the chariots of fire, but we don't know that Elisha did. What we do know is that Elisha was certain they were there. That's faith. Some of you are just dealing with incredibly difficult life circumstances right now. Some of you are walking halls of hospitals for someone that you love or for yourself, and you never thought you were going to be in that situation. Some of you are dealing with family situations you never thought you'd be dealing with. Some of you, your marriages are falling apart. You never thought that was going to happen. And yet, the important thing is to recognize that to stand firm in faith means to recognize you are surrounded by backup. Whether you see it or not, you're surrounded by backup. You're never alone. doesn't matter what you go through. You're never alone. Told you I'm a skeptic, but when it comes to never being alone and to knowing that you can have the strength of doing the right thing, certain stories in your life really speak to that. Now, my dad told you three stories last week. Can I tell you one? Just one, one, one story and then we'll be done. In 2013, an incredibly sweet New Spring family that I just love so much, uh, came to Wendy and I and said, "We really want to send you guys to get some R and R, just Wendy and you, to get some to get some rest." And there's this Christian dude ranch that we really like, and they they have a specific week that's just to minister to pastors. It's a small, it's a big, it's a big ranch, but they just do a small group of pastors at the end of their season every year. And uh, we would like to send you to that. And I, I know you guys can tell from from the cowboy boots and the rugged physique that I am a cowboy. Um, but uh, I, I thought it would be fun, you know, go ride the horses, have a good time, relax, and, and really kind of, you know, we knew they were bringing in another pastor to speak to us, and it's always a great opportunity to listen to someone speak and really get energized by that. My wife is telling me on the plane as we head out there that it's going to rain every day that we're there, right? And I said, ah, it's no big deal. It'll rain part of the day, and then it'll dry up, and then we'll have a good time. And this was right right around Estes Park i'm like it's going to be beautiful so you know we can do indoor stuff when it rains when it's not raining we'll ride the horses and have a good time it's going to be great so we go there but it never stopped raining from the time that we got there the whole time it just never stopped raining now the thing is i'm a, i'm an eternal optimist we're we're sitting in this Session where they're doing the devotional, we're singing worship songs, and we're noticing that the staff of the camp is sweeping water away from the buildings with big brooms. And Wendy's like, "That can't be. That can't be normal." And I'm like, "I'm sure it is normal. I bet they do that every time it rains here. You know, I like to be a reassuring person like that. You know." And uh, but it, it continually started to get worse, and we started to notice there was flooding that was starting to happen. And um, all of a sudden, there was kind of a loud noise, and they ushered us into this dining area because they said it was safe. That's always encouraging. Um, and what they told us is that a mudslide had just ripped through the, the ranch and it had actually taken out the main road. It was, it was that substantial. I mean, if you're familiar with mudslides, you know they can do a tremendous amount of damage in a very, very fast period of time. It just pulled the entire road out. Now, the problem with that is when you have water coming down from the top of the mountain, coming straight through your camp, it is now coming for all of your buildings and it's coming for your livestock. So now, instead of this being R&R, there were like 10 of us pastors and our our wives and then there was the staff at the camp and we spent the entire day um, with shovels and with sandbags, everything that we could do to keep the, the water away from the horses and to keep the water away from the buildings, even though several of the buildings did end up flooding. It was one of the hardest days of work I, I, I can ever remember just because it was crisis all day long trying to redirect this water. Uh, to give you an idea, this water right here was so deep it was over my knee. Um, and, and when you're talking about water that's moving this fast, it would pick you up off your feet right? So it was crazy. And this, this was toward the beginning right after the mudslide. We we were dealing with this. It got continually worse to where we weren't even taking uh, pictures just because it was such a crisis mode. But I cannot begin to tell you what it is like to stand in basically what is like a river of water that's that's running through what used to be a road. So we did that all day long. And honestly, toward the end of the day, things started to pick up. I mean, the you know, forecast was saying it was going to stop raining the next day. That was good because we really needed it to stop raining. And um, you know, they told us, "Hey, look, we're going to try to regroup and figure out how to get you guys out of here." We had no communication because the mudslide ripped out the communication lines, so we couldn't communicate with Estes. And then on top of all that, that we were hearing rumors that there was damage to one of the roads. And so, um, but at least we were safe. And they, you know, we we ate a meal. The water supply at the place was breached, and so we couldn't take a shower or anything. We we're just really um, thankful that we were all safe we went back to our rooms and they said now if another mudslide occurs run that way that did my heart good um, but again eternal optimist i'm like well it's over we're not going to have any more problems tonight right so um i'm you know i'm i'm just kind of forgetting about it resting in bed and, I, and all i hear my wife going like is everything okay She's like, you know about that old couple on the Titanic? All they had was each other. And I'm like, why would you say something like this to me at a time like this, right? I'm just trying to ignore what's going on, right? Man. Marital communication. Um. It wasn't too, much, too long after that, and I had actually kind of drifted off to sleep, that I wake up to the sound of someone knocking on our door. Now, typically when somebody knocks on your door, they do this nice little rap, but when somebody's banging on your door like that, you know something is wrong. When we came out, they said, there's another mudslide run. It's dark. We didn't even see where the mudslide where the, where the mud was happening. But I promise you, I've never heard anything like this before in my life. I felt like I was standing next to a train and hearing a freight train right in front of me, and I was hearing a pop, 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 pop. It sounded like fireworks. It was trees breaking under somewhere between a 10 to 16-foot wall of mud coming through. Craziest night of my life. They evacuated us to another lodge, but the other lodge had a 1,000-gallon propane tank that was breached, they had to take us back to... The lodge that we were at in the first place, they put us in what they called the strongest building on their site. And I said, so it would withstand a a mudslide? And the guy said, no, you understand that nothing is strong enough to to withstand a 15-foot wall of mud. I mean, that was very comforting to me. I appreciated him putting it that way. Um, And beyond all of this, uh, the place where they had us staying was the dorm for the the camp workers uh, who were all single. So that meant that there was a lady's floor and a guy's floor. So my wife and I, on one of the most stressful nights of our life, I have to kiss her goodnight. She goes up to the top floor. I go down to the bottom floor with all the rest of the, the pastors and the guy staff. I mean, it was the craziest night of my life because literally they were telling us, well, hopefully we'll make it through the night. We can't, if we, you know, another mudslide, who knows what's going to happen. It's the craziest thing. In the morning we got up and it stopped raining We started seeing damage all over the place. Can't begin to tell you. I mean, you guys know, you've been around, you've seen tornadoes. The kind of damage that's just everywhere you look, trees falling over, things that are just mashed and bashed in. But I wanna show you this last picture because it's part of what God is trying to use to teach me to be fearless in this life, to do the right thing. This is a picture we took from the bottom of the mudslide path. You can tell it's coming from up the mountain. What you can't tell from this picture is the weird path that it took. As a matter of fact, if you, took an, if, you, if you take an aerial photograph, and there were some aerial photographs taken, you see one mudslide that goes around our camp on the left and one mudslide that goes around our camp on the right. It's the weirdest thing. Never seen anything like it. Now, you can try to give me a topographical explanation for this. I mean, this mudslide came within feet of one of the cabins the pastor was staying in. You'll never convince me that it wasn't the angels of God pushing that mudslide in two different directions to keep it away from that camp. To keep those teenagers safe that are staff members that are someday gonna change the world. To keep these 10 pastors and their wives safe that are going back to their churches. To keep this amazing property that is ministering to people all summer long to keep it doing what it's doing. And it's almost as though God is saying, Jonathan, if I'm able to do that for you, Please don't forfeit anything else. Please don't let the procrastination and the excuses and the compromise, I mean, enough, enough. God is calling me to man up and do what I need to do. Do what you need to do because you have backup. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and for the fact that you are with us no matter what we go through, no matter how difficult the circumstance is, and that we can trust that you have our back that you'll take care of us no matter what we go through. We thank you for your protection and your provision and your love, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for being here this week. We'll see you next week for Angels.